Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 7, Side 1. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. The Taney decision took the center stage at the Convention of the Colored Citizens of Massachusetts held at New Bedford on August 2, 1858. Robert Morris said that the decision should be trampled upon and that he doubted whether the Massachusetts courts would enforce it. Joshua B. Smith who, in 1847, had fled from his North Carolina master, told the gathering that he could not respect a Supreme Court that would so infamously take from him his rights. Charles Lennox Remond, a more practiced denouncer, proclaimed that he was prepared to spit upon the ruling by Judge Taney. He wanted no long resolution, added Remond, only a short one saying that we defy the Dred Scott decision. The wrought-up remand was far from finished. He moved that a committee be appointed to prepare an address to the slaves inviting them to rebel. He said that he did not wish to see the people on the platform turn pale at his proposal, but to rise and talk. The first person to rise was Josiah Henson, made famous as the man after whom Mrs. Stowe had modeled her chief character, Uncle Tom. Henson said that he doubted that the time was ripe for such a step. As for turning pale, Henson declared that he had never turned pale in his life. Father Henson is a very black man, added the reporter parenthetically. In a thrust at Ramond's courage, Henson voiced the opinion that if the shooting time came, Ramond would be found out of the question. When Ramond was able to get the floor again, he denied that he would skulk in time of danger. He only regretted that he had not a spear with which he could transfix all the slaveholders at once. Following a spirited discussion, the Ramond proposal was voted down by a small majority. A convention of New England Negroes meeting in Boston in August 1859 called the decision of Taney and his slaveholding associates a disregard for all historical verity a defiant contempt of state sovereignty, and a wanton perversion of the Constitution. The speeches by Garrison, Remond, Loguen, John S. Rock, and others were all characterized by a radical anti-slavery sentiment, although, according to a Negro Weekly, an allusion to colored barbers and their refusal to shave men of their own complexion produced a little discordance. The most novel and long-continued means of protesting the Dred Scott decision took place in Boston, where, beginning in 1858, Negro abolitionists held a Crispus Attucks Day. The first to die in the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770, Attucks had impeccable credentials as a martyr for American liberty. Others might forget him, but not black Bostonians. 
1851, seven of them, including William C. Nell and Lewis Hayden, had sent an unsuccessful petition to the state legislature asking that $1,500 be appropriated for the erection of a monument to the memory of Attucks. The meeting held at Faneuil Hall on March 5, 1858, in protest to the Taney decision, was a feast of sight and sound. The hall was decorated for the occasion. In front of the speaker's rostrum was an exhibit of Revolutionary War relics, which included a small cup allegedly owned by Attucks, a picture of Washington crossing the Delaware in which Black Prince Whipple was seen pulling the stroke oar, and a banner presented by Governor John Hancock to a Negro military company, the Bucks of America. The meeting was graced by original songs, one of them by Charlotte Fortin, who journeyed from Salem to be on hand. A hymn by Francis Ellen Watkins, Freedom's Battle, was delivered by the Attucks Glee Club. This youthful quintet included Edward M. Bannister and George L. Ruffin, both destined for fame, one as a painter and the other as a judge. With William C. Nell presiding, the speakers included Theodore Parker, Garrison, Phillips, and John S. Rock. A letter was read from Thomas Wentworth Higginson lauding the role played by Negroes in the slave rescue cases in Boston and divulging that the first man to enter the courthouse door in an attempt to rescue Anthony Burns was a Negro, contrary to general supposition. In his speech, Wendell Phillips outdid himself as far as his predominantly Negro audience was concerned. After glorifying Attucks, he urged his black listeners to show valor in life so that when their deeds became known, people would say, Oh, yes, they have always been a brave, gallant people. Was there not an Attucks in 70? Of the speeches, the most militant came from John S. Rock. Refuting the charge that the Negro was docile, he predicted that sooner or later the clashing of arms will be heard in this country and the black man's services will be needed. The race-conscious rock also recurred to the theme that black was beautiful. When I contrast the fine, tough, muscular system, the rich, beautiful color, the full, broad features of the Negro with the delicate physical organization, wan color, and lank hair of the Caucasian, I am inclined to believe that when the white man was created, nature was pretty well exhausted. Fifth of March commemorations would be held in Boston every year until the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870. Eighteen years later, the city and state authorities appropriated a total of $13,000 to erect a Christmas Attucks monument on the Boston Common. In 1932, as a result of the efforts of Boston Negroes, the Massachusetts legislature passed an act ordering the governor to issue annually a proclamation calling for a proper observance of March 5th of the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. The annual observance of Crispus Attucks Day had begun in 1858 as a protest against the Dred Scott decision, but its meaning was far more of an affirmation than of a remonstrance for it was an evidence that the spirit of the American Revolution, of which Attucks was a conspicuous symbol, was still alive, not having run its course by 1858, or, as it turned out, by 1888 or 1932. 
Throughout the North, the strong denunciation of the Dred Scott decision did much to raise the threshold of incipient violence. Certainly among Negroes the spirit of militancy became more pervasive and insistent. At a convention of Ohio Negroes in 1858, William H. Day, after reviewing the plight of the colored people, declared that resistance by force of arms was their right and duty. John I. Gaines, a boat storekeeper from Cincinnati, criticized Day as being impractical, Negroes being a weak, enslaved, and ignorant people. But however impractical, Negro public speakers were preparing their addresses around highly militant figures and themes. James T. Hawley, lauded Toussaint L'Overture, Haitian liberator, in a speech entitled The Auspicious Dawn of Negro Rule. Ali ended his lecture with the assertion that it was far better that his sable countrymen should be dead free men than living slaves. J. Sella Martin, pastor of the Joy Street Baptist Church in Boston, drew large audiences for his prepared address on a Baptist exhorter of an earlier day, Nat Turner. Blunt-spoken William J. Watkins toured the abolitionist circuit with a lecture on the irrepressible conflict. The new climate of impending physical confrontation inevitably produced its own energizers. Of the abolitionist figures thrust up by the undercurrents of violence, one stands in a class by himself, John Brown of Osawatomie. To Brown, slavery itself was a species of warfare, demanding a counter-resort to arms. Brown's daring sweep into Virginia in October 1859 his capture and his execution constituted a national shock from which there would be no recovery. Abolitionists, hitherto of a pacifist orientation, found reason to reverse themselves as the whole atmosphere became charged. Brown's relationships with Negroes had been close, continuous, and on a peer basis, a pattern which no other white reformer could boast. Apparently no Negro who ever knew Brown ever said anything in criticism of his attitude or behavior toward colored people. Brown's attitude toward slavery and his grim and forceful response to it were shaped by many things, of which his own personal experiences with Negroes was not the least. The reciprocal relations between John Brown and the blacks began long before five of them accompanied him to Harper's Ferry and four of them to his doom. Brown's interest in colored people dated back to 1834, when he proposed to get at least one Negro boy or youth and bring him up as we do our own. Fifteen years later, Brown moved his family to North Elba, New York, expressly to settle among Negroes, most of them recipients of land grants from Garrett Smith. Brown attempted to assist his Negro neighbors in business matters, and he invited them to his weekly sessions in the study of the Bible. Richard Henry Dana, paying a farewell call to John Brown at North Elba on a morning in late June 1849, noted that at the breakfast table eating with the family were the hired hands, including three Negroes. Brown's attempt to spur Negroes on led him in 1848 to contribute a lengthy article to the Ram's Horn, a short-lived weekly. Entitled Sam Bow's Mistakes, this article lampoons the habits of the Negro. Brown felt that the colored people were not doing all that they themselves could do in self-improvement. Hence, in Sambo's mistakes, 
He makes his point by posing as a Negro who is offering to his fellows the benefit of his experience in life. A typical passage reads as follows. Another error of my riper years has been that when any meeting of colored people has been called in order to consider any important matter of general interest, I have been so eager to display my spouting talents and so tenacious of some trifling theory or other that I have adopted that I have generally lost all sight of the business at hand, consumed the time disputing about things of no moment, and thereby defeated entirely many important measures calculated to promote the general welfare. But I am happy to say I can see in a minute where I missed it. Another small error of my life, for I never committed great blunders, has been that I never would, for the sake of union in the furtherance of the most vital interests of our race, yield any minor point of difference. In this way, I have always had to act with but a few, or more frequently alone, and could accomplish nothing worth living for. But I have one comfort. I can see in a minute where I missed it. If few men knew the Negro's shortcomings as perceptively as Brown, there were even fewer who were as distressed by color prejudice as he. One of his followers relates that while walking in Boston in April 1857, Brown was greatly annoyed at the rude language addressed to a colored girl, language of the type, Brown said, that would not have been directed to a white girl. Entering the Massasoit House in Chicago for breakfast on April 25, 1858, Brown was told that the Negro member of his party, Richard Richardson, a fugitive slave, could not be served. Brown marched out, although not before subjecting the proprietor to a little bit of terse logic. Aside from his equalitarian principles, Brown was interested in the welfare of the colored people because he had something for them to do. His all-consuming passion was the abolition of slavery, an end which he proposed to accomplish by enlisting a semi-militaristic group of followers ready for direct action. Brown's role for the Negro was implicit in an organization he formed in January 1851 at Springfield, Massachusetts, the United States League of Gileadites. Formed to resist the fugitive slave law, the Gileadites pledged themselves to go armed and to shoot to kill, a pattern of conduct that would characterize Brown's later operations in Kansas and at Harper's Ferry. The 44 colored men and women who signed the agreement apparently had little call for action. Moreover, in March 1851, Brown, the original man in motion, left for Ohio. Brown was interested in recruiting Negro leaders and the black rank and file. Prominent figures sought out by Brown included Frederick Douglass, Martin R. Delaney, Stephen Smith, Jermaine W. Loguen, Henry Highland Garnett, William Still, and Charles H. Langston. His contacts with Douglas, whom he desperately wished to win over, stretched over a longer time span and were more numerous than with any other Negro leader. Brown's acquaintance with Douglas went back to the spring of 1848, when the latter, at Brown's request, visited him at Springfield. In the spring of 1858, Brown paid two visits to the Douglas home in Rochester, New York, one of them extending over a period of two weeks. While a guest of Douglas, Brown met a fugitive slave, Shields Green, who would accompany him to Harper's Ferry. 
Shortly before Brown got ready to make his raid into Virginia, he arranged to meet Douglas at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, some twenty miles from the site of the planned foray. Douglas brought a letter for Brown from Mrs. J. N. Gloucester, a Brooklyn woman of means, with twenty-five dollars enclosed. Douglas was accompanied by Shields Green, the two of them being led to Brown's hideout by Harry Watson, a Negro underground railroad operator at Chambersburg. For three days, Brown tried to persuade Douglas to join the expedition. Douglas steadfastly refused, discretion having formed his decision. Not a single other Negro leader would join Brown, all of them considering his venture imprudent. On May 17, 1859, Brown wrote to Loguen, I will just whisper in your private ear that I have no doubt you will soon have a call from God to minister at a different location. Despite the language, the Negro clergyman remained unconvinced. Loguen, like other Negroes, admired Brown for his anti-slavery exploits in Kansas and his daring excursion into Missouri in which he had freed eleven slaves by a show of force. However, as much as they revered Brown for his courage, Negro leaders thought that the proposed seizure of Harper's Ferry was inordinately risky, if not foolhardy. Brown's most ambitious attempt to enlist the Negro rank and file was the holding of a convention at Chatham, Ontario, in early May 1858. Brown's own party of twelve was present, as were thirty-four Negroes. These included the presiding officer, a Negro clergyman, William C. Monroe, the poet, James Madison Bell, and Martin R. Delaney, the last named then practicing medicine at Chatham, having come at the urgent personal invitation of Brown himself. The chief work of the convention was the adoption of a provisional constitution of the United States, a document which avowed the Declaration of Independence and condemned slavery. The Chatham Convention lacked follow-up. With Brown gone, and with no action of any kind forthcoming for nearly seventeen months, the enthusiasm of the Chatham signers abated, never to be rekindled. But at Chatham, Brown for the first time had met Harriet Tubman. He had thought of her as the shepherd of the slaves that he would shake loose. Brown's tete-a-tete with Harriet confirmed his already high opinion of her but neither she nor Delaney would be with him at Harper's Ferry. Brown, however, had not left Chatham empty-handed. A young printer's devil, Osborne Perry Anderson, had been impressed by the convention and by its convener. He would be the only black survivor of Harper's Ferry. By the autumn of 1859, Brown was ready to seize the government arsenal at Harper's Ferry, a prelude to establishing a stronghold in the mountains and thus liberating the slaves on a mounting scale of operations. Late in the night of October 16th, Brown moved into the town, leaving three of his party at the Kennedy Farm, the base of operations in Maryland. Marching into the darkened Harper's Ferry behind Brown were eighteen followers, five of them Negroes, Osborne Perry Anderson, Shields Green, Dangerfield Newby, like Green, an escaped slave, and two recruits from Oberlin, Ohio, John A. Copeland, Jr., and Louis S. Leary, his uncle. Copeland, a former student in the preparatory department at Oberlin College and the most articulate of the five, 
had joined Brown to assist in giving that freedom to at least a few of my poor and enslaved brethren who have been most foully and unjustly deprived of their liberty. John Brown was hardly a battlefield tactician. Lacking a clear and definite plan of campaign, his raid was quickly suppressed. The first of the five fatalities inflicted by Brown's men was on a free Negro, Haywood Shepherd, baggage master of the train depot, a contretemps which seemed to set the stage for a military fiasco. Ten of Brown's band were killed, Newby first and Leary later. Copeland and Green were among the seven who were captured, and Anderson was among the five who escaped. Brown and his captured followers were imprisoned in Charleston. Brown was tried first, and on October 31st the jury returned with a verdict of guilty. Two days later the judge pronounced a sentence of death by hanging. During the thirty-day interval between the sentence and the execution, Brown bore himself with fortitude and serenity. Brown's inner peace was not shared by his countrymen, particularly those in the North. For his act, however rash and wrong-headed, had dramatized the issue of slavery, forcing neutrals to abandon their fence-sitting posture and giving to the abolitionists a martyr figure of unprecedented proportions. Charles H. Langston, like half a dozen white abolitionists, felt the necessity of issuing a card of denial stating that he had had no hand in the Harper's Ferry affair. But what shall I deny, added Langston? I cannot deny that I feel the very deepest sympathy with the immortal John Brown in his heroic and daring effort to free the slaves. Langston's sentiment of sympathy and esteem mirrored the reaction of the overwhelming majority of black Americans. During Brown's month in jail, innumerable prayer and sympathy meetings were held throughout the North. None were more fervent than those called by Negroes. The weekly Anglo-African for November 5th carried a guest editorial by James W.C. Pennington entitled, Pray for John Brown. Such advice was hardly needed. On the day after Brown was sentenced, a group of Providence Negroes meeting at the Zion Church expressed their full sympathy for Captain John Brown. Despite their abhorrence to bloodshed and civil war, they referred to Brown as hero, philanthropist, and unflinching champion of liberty, and pledged themselves to send up their prayers to Almighty God on his behalf. A group of Chicago Negroes, meeting later that month, drafted a letter to Brown assuring him of their deep sympathy and their intention to contribute material aid to his family. How could we be so ungrateful as to do less for one who has suffered, bled, and now ready to die for the cause? At the Siloam Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, a prayer meeting cutting across denominational lines was led by the pastor, A. N. Freeman, assisted by fellow clergymen Henry Highland Garnet, James N. Gloucester, and Amos G. Beeman. Colored women sent letters of esteem to the jailed Brown. A group of Brooklyn matrons wrote that they would ever hold him in their remembrance, considering him a model of true patriotism because he sacrificed everything for his country's sake. From Kendallville, Indiana, Francis Ellen Watkins sent a letter on behalf of the slave women, an admixture of Christian faith in the future and symbolic references to the past. 
you have rocked the bloody Bastille, and the hemlock is distilled with victory when it is pressed to the lips of Socrates. A group of women from New York, Brooklyn, and Williamsburg sent Mrs. Brown a letter on November 23rd. Its content summarized in the lines, Fear not, beloved sister, trust in the God of Jacob. As John Brown stepped from the jail on the last morning of his life, no little slave child was held up for the benison of his lips, for none but soldiers were near, and the street was full of marching men. However, as Brown was led to the gallows, a slave woman said, God bless you, old man. If I could help you, I would. Brown went to his death with dignity, and the day concluded, wrote one who was present, with the calm and quiet of a New England Sabbath. If December 2, 1859, was also a quiet day in abolitionist circles, it was due to the nature of its observance. Throughout the North, reformers held prayer meetings or meetings with a religious orientation. At Boston, where all Negro businesses were closed, the colored people, wearing armbands of black crepe, held three prayer meetings, morning, afternoon, and night, at Leonard Grimes's Twelfth Baptist Church. Many persons stayed from one meeting to the next, not needing to go out for meals on a day of widespread fasting. One of these all-day sojourners was Lydia Maria Child, who had journeyed from Wayland, fifteen miles away, to spend the solemn day with Negroes. She therefore had to miss the much larger meeting at Tremont Temple, arranged by the white abolitionists, but with Negroes attending in large numbers, and with J. Sella Martin as one of the featured speakers. But perhaps it was just as well that Mrs. Child did not go to the crowded temple, for thousands were turned away. Martyr Day, as some black abolitionists called it, was appropriately observed by New York Negroes at a meeting at Shiloh Church beginning at ten in the morning, and with a period of silent prayer at noon. Of the six clergymen on the program, William Goodell, the only white speaker, differed from two of his colleagues on one point. When James N. Gloucester endorsed John Brown's course, Goodell dissented on the grounds that the weapons of the abolitionists were moral and religious rather than carnal. Samson White took issue, informing Goodell that George Washington, whom Americans revered, had not taken the position that our weapons are not carnal when he led the new nation in its struggle against English oppression. Washington and the Americans of his day had acted on the premise that resistance to tyrants was obedience to God. White, somewhat carried away, said that he had an arm which he felt duty-bound to use when his God-given rights were invaded. Philadelphia Negroes, like those in Boston, observed Martyr Day by closing down their businesses. Public prayer meetings were held at two churches, Shiloh and Union Baptist. Hundreds of colored men and women went to National Hall to hear Robert Purvis and white William Furness. Pittsburgh's black community held a meeting addressed by native son George Vachon. At Detroit, the colored people gathered at the Second Baptist Church, where they passed a resolution vowing to venerate Brown's character, regarding him as our temporal leader whose name will never die. On Martyr Day at Cleveland, the 2,000 who managed to get into crowded Melodian Hall included almost as many whites as blacks, with almost as many equally mixed milling around outside, unable to get in. Judges and members of the state legislature were among the platform guests flanking the presiding officer, Charles H. Langston. The walls were draped in black, 
and the stage was hung with large-lettered framed quotations from John Brown's writings and conversations. Negroes in lesser towns throughout the North, from Worcester, Massachusetts to Galesburg, Ohio, likewise paused on December 2, 1859, to honor John Brown on the day of his death. Negroes felt that they had an especial obligation to assist in the efforts to give financial aid to John Brown's widow. Their donations would not be large, but they would represent a more widespread giving than their modest totals might indicate. The John Brown Relief Fund of New Haven raised $13 for Mary Brown. Philadelphia Negroes sent her $150, and the recently formed John Brown Liberty League of Detroit donated $25. Some Negroes, such as Francis Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgment were brief, but gracious and inspirational. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles Concluded Cassette 7, Side 2 Some Negroes, such as Francis Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgment were brief, but gracious and inspirational. The sympathy that Negroes felt for Mrs. Brown extended to Mrs. Mary Leary, widow of Louis S. Leary. The wife and seven children of the other Negro who fell at Harper's Ferry, Dangerfield Newby, were in slavery, and neither of the two Negroes who were hanged, John A. Copeland or Shields Green, was married. Boston Negroes raised $40 for Mrs. Leary and her child, and $10 to go toward erecting a monument to the memory of the heroes of Harper's Ferry. The colored women in Brooklyn and New York sent Mrs. Leary a total of $140, bringing from her the reply that her loss had been great, but she hoped that her husband and his associates had not died in vain in their attack on that great evil, American slavery. Negroes did not wait for history to pass the verdict on John Brown. He was the greatest man of the 19th century, ran a resolution adopted by a group of New Bedford Negroes two days after he mounted the scaffold. This evaluation was echoed by Frederick Douglass in a letter to Brown's associate, James Redpath, on June 29, 1860. Brown's portrait graced the wall of the Purvis dining room at Byberry, Pennsylvania. In Troy, New York, the black children pooled their pennies so that they might buy a picture of him for their school. A Negro Weekly compared him with Nat Turner, discovering that both were idealistic, Bible-nurtured, tenacious of purpose, swayed by spiritual impulses, and calm and heroic in prison. The evaluation of Brown by Negroes was uncritical, since he perhaps was worth more for hanging than anything else. But as prophets, Negroes did better. For with the ensuing rapid current of national events, Brown's fate became a rallying cry and his name a legend. It is true, wrote John A. Copeland, as he sat in the jail awaiting the hangman's noose, that the outbreak at Harper's Ferry did not give immediate freedom to the slave, but it was the prelude to that event. On the eve of the Civil War, the abolitionists lost John Brown, but they regained Charles Sumner. The Massachusetts senator had been the victim of a physical assault, which, like the John Brown raid, bespoke the mounting violence of the times. On May 22, 1856, as Sumner sat reading his mail in the nearly empty Senate chamber, a congressman from South Carolina, Preston S. Brooks, 
belabored him on the head with a heavy cane. Brooks had bitterly resented a verbal attack which Sumner had made two days earlier against his uncle, Senator Andrew Pickens Butler, in a Senate speech which at once became famous under the title, The Crime Against Kansas. Brooks Kane felled Sumner, bleeding and unconscious to the floor. Reformers throughout the North were shocked, Negroes throughout the North holding protest meetings. By mid-1860, Sumner, now become by martyrdom a truly important figure, was ready once more to answer the roll call. On June 4th, after an absence of nearly 50 months from the Senate chamber, he arose to deliver a speech. He took the floor at 10 minutes past 12 and spoke until a little after 4. Sumner's was the eloquence of industry rather than the eloquence of inspiration, wrote one of his Negro admirers, Archibald H. Grimke. He requires space, and he requires time. Doubtless, on this occasion, Sumner felt that his subject, the barbarism of slavery, warranted extended treatment. The essence of the address, however, may be briefly stated. Slavery was a upas tree with all its gigantic poison. In the esteem of black Americans, Sumner already was second to none in national politics. For this maiden effort on his return to the Senate, Negro leaders showered him with a profusion of epistolary plaudits. From Robert Morris, who had worked with him in 1849 on the separate schools issue in Boston, came a letter of thanks in behalf of the colored young men of Boston. Another lawyer, John S. Rock, later to be admitted on motion of Sumner to the bar of the United States Supreme Court, sent word, Your immortal speech has sent a thrill of joy to all lovers of freedom everywhere. A colored citizen of New Bedford, who had, upon his own testimony, faithfully devoted more than twenty years of his brief life to the elevation of his race, assured the senator that the gratitude of the colored people was incalculable. However phrased, all of the letters expressed complete approval. Ebenezer D. Bassett, principal of the Institute for Colored Youth at Philadelphia, and later to become the first Negro to represent the United States at Port-au-Prince, Haiti, informed Sumner that the speech was unequaled by anything in the oratory of modern times. Bassett, as one with a reputation as a classical scholar, felt emboldened to place Sumner's effort side by side with the matchless D. Corona of Demosthenes. From Philadelphia also came word from William Still, You have effectually laid the axe at the root of the tree. At nearby Byberry, Robert Purvis had posted a note. Sumner's speech had stirred within him the deepest emotions. H. O. Wagoner, venturing to speak in the name or in the behalf of the seven or eight thousand colored people of the state of Illinois, returned heartfelt thanks for the ever-memorable services which you have just rendered in the Senate of the United States to the cause of my enslaved and downtrodden fellow countrymen. Could the poor slave, continued Wagoner, know the substance of that speech and the circumstances under which it was given, in the very face of the slave power, I say could the slaves be made to comprehend fully all this, it would thrill their very souls with emotions of joy unspeakable. The right word has been uttered, intoned Frederick Douglass. You spoke to the Senate and the nation, but you have a nobler and a mightier audience. The civilized world will hear you and rejoice at the tremendous exposure of meanness, brutality, blood-guiltiness, hell-black iniquity, and barbarism of American slavery. 
terming it the most anti-slavery speech ever made in the Senate Hall of the United States, Douglas Monthly carried it in full. Francis Ellen Watkins caught the mood, turning out some lines whose spirit may be sampled from the opening and closing stanzas. Thank God that thou hast spoken words earnest, true, and brave. The lightning of thy lips has smote the fetters of the slave. Thy words were not soft echoes, thy tones no siren song. They fell as battle-axes upon our giant wrong. Although fulsomely praised by Negroes, Sumner's speech drew bitter comments in the North, where the prevailing sentiment was far less hostile toward slavery than his. Less than five months after the address, however, Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency, and a rapprochement between the sections became all but impossible. Less than seven weeks after the Republican victory, South Carolina officially dissolved its union with the other states of North America. Seeking to convince the South that her institutions, particularly slavery, were not endangered, conciliators in both houses of Congress tried to find a pacifying formula. Their efforts provoked a heated public discussion, which in turn made for an increased hostility toward the colored man, who was held to be the source of all discord. The everlasting Negro is the rock upon which the ship of state must split, ran an angry, widely reprinted editorial in a Providence Daily. Will the people stand for this much longer? Will they make the Negro their god? The possibility of a rapprochement between the North and the South dismayed the Negro. All compromises now are as new wine to old bottles, new cloth to old garments, editorialized Douglas Monthly. To attempt them as a means of peace between freedom and slavery is as to attempt to reverse irreversible law. Negro leaders were apprehensive lest the road to sectional reconciliation become the last resting ground for freedom. But such fears of a sellout solution by the North or any kind of peaceful settlement proved premature. Six weeks after Lincoln took office, Fort Sumter was fired upon, compromise measures like the Union itself having proved unable to cope with slavery. Our national sin has found us out, ran an editorial in Douglas Monthly for May 1861. In this Old Testament sense, war had indeed come as sort of an atonement for a fall from grace, an act of redemption, no matter how untoward its expression. But in a sense less retributive and more peculiarly American, the Civil War was a phase of the continual striving for the goals for which this country had been conceived. The downfall of slavery would thus bring additional strength for the tasks ahead. Viewed in this light, the abolitionist crusade itself was but a continuing phase of the Revolution of 1776, an attempt to put into practice the doctrine of man's essential equality. We have good cause to be grateful to the slave for the benefit we have received to ourselves in working for him, wrote Abby Kelly. In striving to strike his chains off, we found most surely that we were manacled ourselves. Miss Kelly's sentiment bespoke a largeness of mind and of spirit. But written in 1838, it did not fully encompass the role of the black American in the abolitionist crusade. More than an unhappy pawn, he had known that he must work to forge his own freedom, and to this task he had brought special skills. The struggle to make man free was a grim business, but he was accustomed to grim businesses. 
The struggle to make men free might entail armed resistance, but he was crisis-oriented from birth. To the extent that America had a revolutionary tradition, he was its protagonist no less than its symbol. This concludes the reading of Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. This book was read by Jonathan Reese. Another title by Benjamin Quarles in the Books on Tape Library is Lincoln and the Negro. For additional information about it, or for help with topics of related interest, please call our customer service department or check our catalog index to find review material. If you have enjoyed these tapes, you may want to consider buying this audiobook and donating.